0: The stories are sort of to me like messages in a bottle from shores someone else has visited first.
1: Yes, and you're visiting those shores now. Welcome to the Pencil Town Podcast. My name is Nick Johnson and I will be your host for today. This is a very special bonus episode of the Pencil Town Bump In, being released in conjunction with the Thought Bubble Comic Festival 2020, happening from November 9th to November 15th. In light of world events, the convention is being held digitally this year, but that doesn't mean we can't take the opportunity to chat with some inspiring creators and celebrate their hard work. The festival will feature live events, digital comic releases, interviews, panels, and so much more, all of which can be enjoyed from your own home. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the whole world to be a part of this unique UK-based event. I am particularly excited about today's episode because I'll have the chance to catch up with one of my cohorts from the Masters in Comics and Graphic Novels program, Rebecca Elise. Rebecca is an artist, illustrator, and comics creator from Leeds, UK. She graduated from the University of Reading with a BA in Fine Art and English Literature in 2017 and went on to complete a master's in comics and graphic novels at the University of Dundee in 2020. Her work takes inspiration from mythology and the changing narratives around them, as well as a healthy dose of the Gothic, macabre, fantastical, and supernatural. Her impressive work leaps off the page with its innovative layouts, expressive figure work, rich detailed inks, and lush watercolors. Recently, she's been exploring art and comics as a means of articulating her experiences of anxiety and how people perceive it. This has culminated in her continued series of short sci-fi horror comic series, Breathe. And she is without a doubt, one of the most ambitious and hardest working comic creators that I know. So without further ado, let's walk the floor of the Thought Bubble Convention 2020, see if we can track Rebecca down at her table and have a chat about her new book, The Gorgon. Hello, Rebecca. How are you?
0: Hello there, Nick. Long time no see. I'm very good, thank you. Nice to be at Fort Bubble.
1: Yeah, it's really great to be here. I feel so lucky I found you because uh, in the past I've been so unsuccessful at uh, following these maps around to the, <laughs> to the people I'm trying to get to. So uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on the Gorgon. Uh, I had a chance to read it this morning with a cup of coffee in hand, and I was really pulled into this story. I really enjoyed it. And congrats on completing your master's as well.
0: Thank you very much. It's one of those things that felt like a real accomplishment, just being able to produce it, the full kind of story in itself. And I just love mythology. So it felt like doing Medusa justice for once.
1: That's awesome. Uh, Well, While you're talking about it, can you tell us a little bit about your new book?
0: Oh Yeah, of course. So The Gorgon is a kind of subversive retelling of Medusa. And inspired a lot by classic films, literature, especially kind of a Guardian article I saw in which a lot of um, translations of Greek texts had in fact been kind of mistranslated and kind of put in a patriarchal, well, a kind of a misogynistic light towards women in which kind of descriptors would be changed to whore, slut, and you just think they're getting a bad rap anyway and translations are just... Just making it worse for them and I feel like especially in the light of Medusa this kind of fallen woman narrative in which they're kind of throughout history and kind of narratives exceedingly punished for that kind of fall itself and a lot of obviously Medusa's narratives have that kind of rape from Poseidon and then angering Athena for desecrating her temple and all of it seems incredibly unfair especially like in new social contexts, which are really good. Mythologies are particularly kind of malleable for reconfiguring these narratives and putting them in a social context, which is a lot more empathetic, understanding. And I feel like, especially in the light of kind of this era in which we are becoming more acutely aware of how different people are treated, especially how women throughout kind of media and texts have been kind of portrayed. It takes us kind of a step back Whereas usually we would be kind of made to empathize with perhaps the male character that mm-hmm. really Medusa's story is one that is just kind of a cycle of trauma, which I think can be very representative of how people are treated and then go on to treat others kind of in a modern context. So I really wanted to kind of reframe that narrative and look at how these cycles of trauma kind of go on, looking at that kind of Greek idea of metamorphosis as well how we kind of perceive ourselves and then then others kind of continue to perceive us so but also i just really love greek mythology and like (laughs) a little bit of classic clash of the titans 1981 like that's so influential especially like in the design for the characters and things you can just yeah just a little bit nerd coming out
1: uh fair enough i think that is the work that stands out when i think of medusa and perseus and all that that's the first thing that jumps into my mind because i saw it at such a young age and it captured my imagination um which does lead me to my question uh do you remember the first time you were exposed to the medusa narrative was it through this specific clash of the titans film or were there other adaptations that really uh stuck with you
0: i think definitely the most kind of visceral one is the kind of ray Harryhausen and kind of you know the The clay animation medusa looking you know that's where you get that kind of traditional kind of snake body as well as just the snake hair which is usually gorgons are depicted in ancient greece and that idea of like looking in the shield you know you're hiding from her stony gaze and you've got to be witty and kind of outsmart her like definitely that was so it was on all the time especially like every bank holiday there would be clash of the titans on you but it's sitting down like yes yes kind of like in that epic narrative, got to slay Medusa and got to, Perseus got to go save Andromeda from the big sea monster. I feel like that's definitely a massive influence. I think, especially on my love of mythology in general, I I mean, there was also, um, I remember in primary school, I don't know if they do this anymore, but there was like a folklore storyteller, kind of keeping that oral tradition of storytelling kind of going, which I really, really love and I think is so important for kind of re-kind of framing those narratives and having people come in and speak to them it's it's much more like alive than kind of being just written down and she would come in and talk about all these different mythologies from different cultures and things and I feel like some of the Greek ones were the ones that were talked about quite a a lot as well but definitely in terms of design and kind of my first introduction to Medusa it was definitely Clash of the Titans and then I kept trying to seek out those kind of films like Jason and the Argonauts and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it was just, there was just such intrigue into how these characters have been created, where these kind of stories had evolved from. And you kind of see these things repeated in different kind of mythologies across the world. And I found it so fascinating how people kind of from all over the world kind of draw together these not universal but kind of similar narratives in the way things are portrayed and how these monsters are created and then how people go on to tell them later or in modern context then kind of can change the whole creation or messaging of that story and that's just fascinating to me
1: yeah it, they definitely those stories had a huge impression on me i remember us studying greece uh in elementary school uh, or primary school and um really latching onto those stories. I would say that uh, with your comic specifically, you in the comic, you describe stories as immortal, as alive, as being in the hands of those who tell them. And I think about when I first saw those movies, they almost feel like I dreamed them. Like I saw them so young and they made such a profound, um, like dark, violent kind of impression on my psyche that I started to tell stories the same way that they did, following those same tropes like you were talking about. The interesting thing is if those stories are tainted with certain um, misogynist ideas, patriarchal ideas, you continue to tell those stories as you grow up because it's like, oh, this is how it's always been, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so it makes us need a subversive version of those narratives even more so in these days as you touched on in the opening. So I would say that your um, interest in this is very clear in this comic. I'd say even in a post-colonial context, this type of storytelling works. Um, so I was wondering if, uh, if you, if there was something more you wanted to add to that, like how you, how do you infuse those big ideas, uh, into a story without basically just slapping people in the face with a message or creating an essay? How did you take these big ideas and reveal them in this story?
0: I think what's so helpful about mythology as a storytelling device in itself is that a lot of it is already kind of distilled down for you. Like, you know, you already have kind of the context of that story present for you. So it's not just as if the the kind of the Medusa narrative I'm presenting is kind of on its own. So you have the elements I'm trying to highlight. I think because you also have the surrounding kind of simultaneous narratives expanding on and kind of making that world bigger and more kind of, Tactile, that it doesn't come across as just that one particular message or kind of thought process is the only thing that is kind of tainting the story. And, I mean, I found it very difficult, but I was worried of treading the line between am I being too explicit? You know, there's a point where you don't want to, you know, you talking about how that trauma is kind of cyclical and, as you say, like these narratives, in some aspect they will carry those aspects of misogyny or, you know, um, condemnation on these figures, and it's very difficult to tread the line of being respectful and also acknowledging where, like, what scenes are actually going to continue to cause harm, or where do you ensure that the characters come across more empathetically, whilst also just being an enjoyable story. Like for me, as long as well as the kind of um, influences I wanted to kind of statements i wanted to make there was also the i that kind of core kind of saturday morning kind of you've woken up you're watching clash of the titans like there's still that kind of enjoyment of here's this mythological narrative there is some kind of quest but there's also you know there's the plight of the it's kind of perhaps it's more the re-centralizing of medusa as a central figure so it makes it more intriguing whilst also i guess giving it heart and still there's a quest to be pursued.
1: One of the most successful aspects of your depiction of Medusa is, and the way that you uh, develop that empathy for her is just how emotional, um, emo- emotionally invested you get in her story. And, and this is through um, moments like where after Medusa has her encounter with Poseidon, Athena statue comes to life and just the way she is holding Medusa in her hands is just such a heartbreaking image that you've depicted. Um, The other one that really stood out to me is basically you don't show the battle between a bunch of soldiers and Medusa, but you show just right after the soldier has turned into stone and you can see fresh arrows in Medusa. And she's not standing there like a monster, She's, she's crouched over, she's wounded, she's in pain. And you, I've never seen Medusa portrayed like that. And it really just cuts through me. And it really does do that job of putting her in a light that is far more um, empathetic. And we start to think of her as a character and her own feelings. So really well done there.
0: As I say, that's, I guess that's part of that treading the line between are you kind of, kind of glorifying that violence again? You know, I guess it was hard to then contextualize it in terms of actually is this just multiple people then using this monstrous image that's being created of her and kind of how she sees herself as well with what has been done to her. And again, people coming and attacking her all the time is just those that trauma kind of replaying out over and over and over again. And then she's kind of left with this graveyard of these people around her, those constant reminders that, you know, she's seen as an other. She's seen as like, she feels like this is a punishment, regardless of how... Mm-hmm it was difficult trying to make, trying to change that role of Athena to being more of a a guardian or someone trying to almost, like the idea of metamorphosis that she's trying to, you know, she says she wants her to shed this skin. Obviously for Medusa, the way that she now feels after the event that's happened, you know, her image of herself and how other people perceive her is just that constant trauma continued. And I didn't want there to be loads of, battle scenes that really kind of put that to the side.
1: Mm-hmm. Well we, we've seen those battles played out so many times before in different iterations. It's the moments after that uh, we don't get to see that you show that make them special. And in my mind the glorification of violence is when we see violence without consequence but here you dwell on the after effects of what has happened um, which I think is so uh, successful. Um, and the other thing that goes hand in hand with that, I think, is the way you've depicted Perseus here. So he's not like a super charismatic, hunky, Harry Hamlin type character. Um, and, and nor is he a character who is just like, I am a, a part of the patriarchy and I'm here to quell you. He's, he's just as much a victim of these oppressive systems as Medusa, which, which very much hints this idea of toxic masculinity and the way that even men are exploited by patriarchal systems which I think is very fascinating and it's it's an interesting way of depicting what was once a glorious hero of the story. When when you were developing the character of Perseus, was there a lot of thought going into that or did that kind of naturally feel like the way to go?
0: Um, I think definitely that was, I'm glad you picked up on that because that's definitely the case and when I kind of, obviously I'm a bit of a mythology kind of a nerd anyway, but I wanted to kind of research a little bit more and to refresh myself and kind of chronologically kind of put out the timeline of Perseus's story and Medusa's and how they kind of intersect and when I kind of looked back more into Perseus's story again I realized that really he is a product of the same kind of traumas that Medusa is and again that kind of that cycle and kind of people ending up having to be putting that same kind of violence against people that has been done onto them because of those systems in place. I mean Perseus is a demigod The son of Zeus, but his mother was essentially raped because Zeus decided to turn into a a rain cloud and and impregnate his mother. And really, that's essentially the same kind of patriarchal, misogynistic systems which have kind of entrapped Medusa in the end. So really, as the more I research into it, I realised that actually they probably had a lot more in common than has ever been really portrayed before, Mm -hmm. Um, especially obviously then as his story continues that the person who his grandfather locks him away in a casket and sends him off and then the people that is supposed to polydectes who picks him up from the casket who is supposedly their their kind of savior from this this doom that was placed upon them is then leching after his mother and he goes oh go get this head of medusa as a wedding present otherwise you know just to send him out of the way essentially and so really he's a bit of a loss He's doesn't you know he's been told you know all these heroic Greek tales I'm sure were around him at the time as well and he's like okay I can save my mother and this other woman if if I kill this monster but obviously Medusa's not a monster really mm-hmm. and I think their their interactions were probably the most interesting for me and the ones that I wanted to kind of more organically set up rather than you know there was obviously going to be a bit of a, a clash to begin with but. I felt like they really needed to have that kind of conversation which kind of showed their commonalities more than anything
1: yeah fantastic I feel more and more I create stories the more I'm finding my big final climax is less a violent confrontation and more uh, a discussion (laughs) (laughs) which uh, isn't always a cinematic but the the real challenge of storytellers is how do you How do you create a a debate on screen or um, an argument that is both visually captivating and doesn't have to resort to violence as the final answer?
0: I think it's important as well that violence can't be the final answer because otherwise, you know, you're just continuing the same violence that's been done everywhere else. And you see that, I mean, it was the hardest kind of aspect of the comic, I think, was finding that natural kind of, broaching of the conversation between the two characters, but I don't think there would have ever been a resolution without that. And I thought it was very important, that that's how the comic ended because there's a more hopeful note because it feels like that kind of cycle is broken.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely talk about that ending without spoiling too much a little bit later. <laughs> um, so let's uh, switch gears a little bit. I want to start talking about the aesthetic look of the book, uh, specifically with regards to the page layouts. So I found these to be uh, very exciting, very organic. You've got pages where Poseidon melts into waves that spread across the page. I find the compositions wind across the, the page just like a snake does, kind of reflecting Medusa's shapes and the way she curls around. Can you talk a bit about your inspiration for this kind of layout and also some of the challenges of making a page like this?
0: Yeah, um, I, feel like, I feel like a bit of a, a cheating comic artists when I say that like I tend to like do comic kind of composition panelling and stuff on the fly so for me like there has to be there's like a certain feel to a page and a lot of the time it's almost kind of taking some of those cinematic inspirations I like doing kind of longer panels and when I feel like it's necessary I feel like you know characters kind of organically breaking out of panels or kind of dissipating into the that kind of gutter space is important to kind of not only accentuate the look the aesthetic of the page but like help direct that story and especially Mm -hmm. the way that they kind of move or they interact with the comic page itself kind of um, reflects a little bit of their character like especially the kind of more menacing pages where Medusa is almost stalking bits of Perseus like the ways that she travels across pages and then the panels and then the lettering, I try to make travel kind of across in the same way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, building up tension, but also like giving a sense that you know not only is she lurking there, but almost stalking and just has control of the page. And I just I enjoy playing with panel layouts a lot. but again, it feels like I very much kind of go, let's play around with these panels. what What can we do? They go, yep, yep, that works. That's fine. I'm just kind of leave <laughs> it at that. Look, there's no secret. It's just.
1: And is uh is that stage of you kind of experimenting? Is there thumbnails that are very full of scribbles and scribbles, and then you're like, okay, there's something good here. I'm going to trace that onto another sheet and refine the elements at work. Or are you uh, going right into detailed pencils? Like, where's most of this problem solving happening?
0: Uh, definitely thumbnailing. I have the mm-hmm. craziest, messiest thumbnailing you have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it is very kind of experimental at first. Again, playing, I think, with page shapes, kind of reading direction, kind of character shapes. I mean, there's a lot of kind of water in this and obviously kind uh-huh. of seeing how that water breaks boundaries and things. Um, so, yeah, I tend to do loads and loads of different thumbnails for a page, making sure I focus on shapes of the panels. And then within those, the panel, the kind of the shape of the character, what kind of dominates, maybe a bit of lighting, but not really anything really in depth in terms of penciling, just getting a sense of movement, how the story will be read and mm-hmm. kind of what atmosphere is created on each page. And then once I've done that, I kind of try to work out what's being said. And then I'll go, okay, go a little bit larger in terms of the thumbnail, map it out again, map out properly what the character's kind of interacting with, see if I need to readjust anything. And then I'll just go straight to sketching out the page full scale.
1: Brilliant. I think uh, sometimes when you're focused on one panel at a time, a creator can forget the larger composition of the entire page as a whole. So to see you considering those kinds of elements is really inspiring. I think one of the more successful pages as well is it's a one page splash and Perseus is talking and we see um, Andromeda and Medusa essentially back to back reflecting each other. And that composition is so beautiful. It could just be a poster on its own, but also the choice of composing it like that really hammers home this theme of this endless cycle of trauma that just keeps going around and around. And there are all of these um, repetitions and, and reflections of, of these characters throughout. So that's another brilliant page there.
0: Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you got that from it. Like, especially with stories and kind of mythologies in particular, there's a kind of duality. There are always kind of two or more of the same characters existing at the same time. There's kind of a simultaneous space in which you have all these different interpretations happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think it was important to kind of recognize that. And also that they kind of inform each other when you're reading kind of one version or whatever that you're reading at the time.
1: Absolutely. And I think they add a sense of rereadability as well, which is something I'm always thinking about. How do I make a story that's engaging at first? But then every time you read it, you get something new out of it. I'd like to move on a little bit and talk about some of your oh yeah, I, I gotta talk about this. The the experimentation and media exploration in your comics is really fascinating to watch. So we've got watercolor, lots of texture, inks, and then there's the lino cut page, um, which just when it pops up, it's a thing of beauty, um, but it still kind of fits the motif of the uh, Greek mythology. Um, so what is your approach to this kind of thing? How do you experiment with media? When do you decide, oh, this page must be linocut in order to fit my vision? When do you go down that insane path of trying to teach yourself an alter artistic method with a deadline with a deadline looming, no less?
0: Yeah. I Well, first of all, I like to make things as difficult as humanly possible for me, obviously. <laughs> But I feel like, again, I'm the kind of person that likes to do lots and lots of experiments, lots and lots of kind of versions of things. And then when something kind of fits into place and clicks, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And we kind of like everything else kind of falls in place around it. And I've always very much liked working with traditional media. I feel like there's something very tactile about it. And especially for like a story like this, it felt, I don't know, it felt more organic for it to kind of transition to these kind of watercoloury kind of slightly more surreal but still kind of bizarrely vibrant like some kind of dream or kind of like the mythology is kind of vibrant and alive and changing and i feel like sometimes the the watercolors did unexpected things Mm -hmm. or they've reacted in unexpected ways and i'd be like okay yes that you know that still makes sense and it looks it still looks good but it feels as if it's kind of making its own way across the page, and I just—it felt like a nice fit more than anything else. Not only that I enjoyed the medium, but I think it helped add that vibrancy, kind of and slightly unexpectedness to it. And I think—I mean, initially I was going to do—I wasn't going to do traditional inking. I was going to do it all kind of lined with coloured pencils. Oh, I wow. found that actually the it helped define the composition more, and helped it make sure the figures and backgrounds kind of stood out in their own right. It was just a lot more readable, you know. And kind of using the dip kind of nib pens and inks also helped give that kind of kind of organic, slightly unsanitized version of this story. I really enjoyed working with them, even if I messed up a couple of pages that I had to redo because ink spilled. Uh, um,
1: oh, oh! <laughs>
0: so is the process. But in terms mm-hmm. of the liner cut as well, that already had an image of like trying to incorporate um, other kind of elements of kind of Greek aesthetic and storytelling because obviously storytelling was massively important to me kind of just how these narratives were kind of continued and like I said before with kind of the folkloric kind of oral storytelling tradition and obviously visually for the Greeks vases and mosaics and things were massively important to retelling these stories so I wanted to have something very much in that style Mm -hmm. and it was just one of those things where I'd been playing a lot with Lino print at the time anyway and then it was just like that'd look pretty good as a vase you know you create some cool textures and stuff as if it had just been unearthed I was like yeah you're right okay Well, we'll give it a whirl and then once I'd started kind of messing with little experiments and things I was like this is the perfect kind of time skip connective moment for that part where almost the external kind of narrator and perspective comes in and kind of does that time jump of how she would be portrayed more classically to then obviously having this harsh sudden cut of the, the lino print, which looks quite, quite striking.
1: Mm-hmm. And obviously
0: I like that it came across off quite textured and sl- slightly aged and warm. Mm-hmm. And it provided that perfect kind of linking piece that separated kind of itself from the main narrative I was telling. So then, then obviously the page afterwards, you have the kind of Medusa defeated with the arrows in her trying to just basically survive. And it's that kind of tonal clash between those two narrative perspectives that I felt like not only going to a different medium would really help kind of, kind of beef up that juxtaposition between the kind of narrative perspectives and kind of the stories that were being told and by who, obviously, which is important as well. So, I mean, it took a really long time. I had to do the minor <laughs> print A3 to ensure that the I could get all the detail and kind of like the scale that I wanted properly and obviously mm-hmm. kind of mimic some of the shapes of the Greek vases and things. So it took a long time. There was lots no of lino all over the floor, but... I don't know, it was a, still a very engaging process. And I think it's one of those things that like, when it does click into place, I'm like, I've just got to do it. Cause otherwise I won't be happy unless it's done. And it's like, you know, it feels like it will be successful. So it's kind of rewarding when you finally see it pulled off and then put in the comic, you feel like, yes, that makes the perfect kind of break between those narratives.
1: Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's, it's a perfect visual way of exploring the idea of perception versus the reality, the myth versus the, the actual emotional people at the core of it. Um, really fascinating. Um, to continue this idea of uh, storytelling techniques, there's some really beautiful cutaways throughout the comic that build atmosphere where we're cutting in on the statue of Athena's face as lightning is going off. Uh, You create a sense of dread. Um, There's the moment where the rain slowly starts to fall upon the statue of Athena and you see candles starting to get um, extinguished by the water, which then becomes Athena's tears. Like, it's very powerful stuff, very cinematic. I was wondering, um, do these moments kind of appear fully formed in your head or are there movies specifically that inspire you to these moments or other comics?
0: It's strange, especially with that scene. That was like one of the first... Images I had in my head, and usually like when I have a story, I have kind of general kind of structure and things. And then there'll be really strong images that kind of intersect each part that kind of then I then develop around. Mm -hmm. So especially for the scene with Athena, obviously Athena statue, that is. I didn't I wanted to, again, have that horror of something not shown and obviously not glorifying the scene where Poseidon attacks Medusa. It felt very kind of poetic to have that perspective shifted again slightly out of that scene and obviously with Athena usually being the person who goes on to punish Medusa then becoming again this empathetic figure even though it's cold and unmoving and she isn't able for whatever reason to do anything at that point and for me because the kind of stone and the water becomes such kind of symbolic kind of um semantic fields throughout the comic anyway it felt important that this kind of cataclysmic pathetic fallacy with the thunder and stuff is the kind of distance that then we are as the viewers are kind of perceiving the scene from like I don't know it was one of those things where the imagery was so strong to me that that was one of the thumbnails that I kind of had sorted out immediately just Mm -hmm. kind of changing maybe the direction Originally, I had it almost panning up to her face, rather like, but from reading the page backwards almost, but it didn't quite make the reading, like, it didn't read as well as it ended up being. I mean, that was also the first test page I did of the full comic in mm-hmm. watercolor and inks. So, kind of bringing it all together when I kind of did put those strong images together with what I felt was really engaging and emotional, and then kind of seeing it, it was kind of like the proof of concept of what I wanted to make. There are other kind of scenes in the comic in which the imagery was strongly there from the start and then kind of evolving the storytelling and the panel structure around those images and how to build off of them into strong things kind of throughout the rest of the
1: comic. Right. Yeah, beautiful. I remember seeing you post this in one of our uh, catch up meetings, just being blown away. And I remember (laughs) part of me was like, oh my God, it's gonna be this level of detail. And you have, and I knew how much time you had left. And I was like, Rebecca, can you (laughs) do it to this level of completion but still maintain your sanity? And I was like, if you can find a simpler way to do this, you definitely should just to the interest of not going crazy. But you did not listen to me and I'm thankful. (laughs) I don't know what the, uh, the toll was on your, on your person if you're dealing with any exhaustion afterwards, but the result is tremendous. So well done.
0: Thank you. It was a very lovely email that I received with you pleading for my own sanity. And I like, <laughs> the, the wisdom. And there was part of me that was like, I have scanned in all the inks now. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do it in watercolor. But there was that, again, there was still that page with Athena in the rain. I was like, but damn, did that look good? <laughs> Sure Um, did. I think once I'd kind of because I'd done so many different experiments with the watercolors and done that page eventually the process became more and more refined I'd mapped Mm -hmm. out all the colors I mapped out what colors I need to mix for each part I worked out kind of the general feeling of what colors related to what characters and I was like okay I can speed up I can do this and I was pulling about painting two or three pages a day and oh my
1: god
0: but it felt it felt right when i was doing them it was it was tiring but at the same time it was such a joy to do i really enjoyed just the process of mixing the colors and then kind of letting them meld out on the page and seeing how they'd interact with each other sounds Mm -hmm. pretty sad but (laughs) i was just enjoying the actual painting process
1: no, it's beautiful. I, I think if there's a part of your process that you hate and that you just can't get through, you should find everything you can in your power to not do it. <laughs> so if you're, if you're lucky enough to be enjoying this kind of stuff, then, then that's amazing. That's, that's a fantastic thing. And as I said, I'm just so overjoyed that you were able to refine the process and do it and uh, get it done because the, the end result is well worth it. Um, There is a a two-page spread, I I understand, where um, we see Medusa go under the water and then rise again in her Gorgon form. Um, Now, if I was reading it as a printed page, that would be a double-page spread, correct? Yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing is I'm reading through PDF, which is in single pages, and I was just scrolling through it on my computer. But I found that in that format, as I was scrolling, it just creates this continuous Moment where you see her slowly disappear into the water and then, you know, come back transformed. I was blown away, and I was like, "Whoa, Rebecca! Did you know that digitally it would have this effect? Like, did you consider the digital uh, version of the comic in any way?"
0: I didn't at all. I mean, got <laughs> totally probably when I had to. I'm glad that it worked. Oh. I'm actually pleasantly surprised how well it does work in the kind of single format pdf because obviously in the double page spread you have them kind of simultaneously almost happening at the same time side by mm-hmm. side but when you're scrolling down there's almost like um, that trepidation that she's going into the water and then oh the snake's coming out oh my gosh but um no i didn't realize it was going to work that well i'm glad it did but um uh-huh. It was a really, it was one of those pages that I actually, I stuck two pages together with a little bit of masking tape in the middle and drew the whole thing across it so that all the ripples of the water and things would all start to interconnect with each other. And then obviously that came to a pain when I actually had to scan it. I never actually think of the hardships of me having to sort it out after I've done it all traditionally, but
1: Mm -hmm. you know, it's
0: always, always fun. It was one of those strong images that I had, again, whilst doing the thumbnailing process. Um, especially the idea that it would be a double page spread and they had to kind of rework the pages around it to make sure that that would kind of be presented as I wanted
1: it to be. Beautiful. As, as someone who was just looking at the printed proof of their comic it also had a double page spread, uh, the conversion to the digital to the print almost broke my brain. Like I, I will not joke around here that I had tears in my eyes as I was trying to navigate how to get the printed book to reveal this double page spread. Uh, Such a challenge. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the ending Uh, that provides a really great sense of emotional closure to the story. Medusa makes a powerful choice as does Perseus and it's one that subverts the narrative that we're all familiar with. I wonder, uh, were you tempted to show where the two go on from there? Like with regards to the confrontation with the Kraken? Do you have plans for continuing the story or are you very much like, you know what? That's the emotional closure. Let's leave it up to the audience.
0: I think very much when I started this project, I wanted to have a whole story kind of completed in itself. Something that kind of acted and could thrive on its own. And I think obviously with People wondering, like having the kind of knowledge of the rest of the myth going on from that, I feel like it leaves that possibility that you change that story for yourself. I didn't want to kind of presume what people wanted to think, but I would obviously, with the hopeful note that I left it on, that idea of, you know, changing how you see yourself, almost being pulled into the sunlight from this dark place that you were in. I, I had considered possibly going on and doing a little bit further. But as I kind of started mapping it out in my head and I was like, it's actually detracting from the story, kind of, there isn't anything that I need. I feel like it didn't add anything to then go on and destroy this monster or rescue Andromeda. Like it feels much more impactful to leave it kind of not shown or just imagined. And I feel like maybe people, maybe they don't go and kill the sea monster, you know, like leaving it up to people's own kind of imagination You know creating these new mythologies almost again playing with those different stories but for me the story had it like it felt like it ended naturally and Mm -hmm. i didn't feel like i wanted to push that i don't think i'd maybe continue this story itself in the future i think maybe i'd revisit it slightly differently again looking at potentially different aspects of it um I think I'd definitely look at other myths again. I mean, I've been reading a really good book by Natalie Haynes called Pandora's Jar, which is examining different portrayals of women in Greek myth. Hmm. Um, And that's been very, very interesting to read. But for this story in particular, it felt like it came to a natural conclusion. And I think what's left unsaid is probably more impactful than if I were to go on and do an epic quest and then go kill a sea monster afterwards.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Uh, To me, to me, a good story ends when we've got a character making a choice, um, making a change of some kind. And like I said, there's emotional closure here that means more to me personally than a than a huge uh, knockdown drag out fight with the sea monster. I think it's more impactful. Um, So the book's all done. It's behind you now. I was wondering if there was something you learned about your process or about storytelling, but through the act of creating it um, that would act as a lesson for you when you approach your next project? If there was something that stuck out like, oh, next time I'm gonna try this technique or telling a story in this way.
0: I think more than anything for me, it was it's the knowledge that I have actually completed it. And mm. more than anything, what has prevented me from trying to tell stories like this or things that I've I'm very passionate about in the past is just the confidence to do it. Like the amount of times you tell yourself, you can't complete, you know, you won't do it as well as you want to do this thing. And then it never gets made. And those stories sit guiltily in the back of your head forever, like never touching pen to paper. And, and I think more than anything, like with the scale of it for me, it was just very important right, that I had it completed. And that mm-hmm. I think it more than anything, even though it was difficult, and there there's certainly a lot of challenges, I've not really done proper script writing before obviously there was the parts where it was very dialogue heavy in parts and making it seem organic and natural to have that dialogue between potential enemies was very difficult and i mean the amount of time i spent spent kind of sitting almost in tears looking at the page going please they would not speak like this wouldn't would anyone speak like this do i need to do some research should i write it in greek what am i doing here like but you know and i also think having that deadline it was like, no, no, you've got to complete it. You, re- you really do. <laughs> Otherwise, mm-hmm. you have nothing. And I think just that little push really went to prove that I could do this thing. And having seeing it, and I can't wait to see it printed. It is being printed as we speak.
1: All right. And
0: then the physical thing in my hand, it'll be like, look at this thing you have made. Like, don't give up on this. It's important to tell these stories. Someone, you know, there people are enjoying reading it. And I think. More than anything, I think that's what is impactful for me. Like the process of storytelling is just actually more than often, more often than not having the confidence to tell that story. You know, mm-hmm. it's never going to be perfect. There are definitely things that I'd like to improve on. Maybe some dialogue aspects and things, maybe refining some of the des- character designs or visuals. But just being able to do it, just actually getting it done to me is more important than anything. And you know, no one can ever, you know, know about your story until you decide to tell it.
1: Absolutely. We, ha- we have these huge expectations to meet up the vision we have in our head, but readers don't come to it with those same expectations. They come to it, you know, on the ground floor and whatever you give them is just extra building on top, right? Um, do you have any recommendations for people on how to become better storytellers? Is there anything you learned um, that you'd like to impart or anything that was really helpful for you in how to construct a story?
0: I think sometimes the best way to learn how to tell stories is take in lots of stories and different mm-hmm. ways of kind of how people tell them. You know, are you, are you reading books, are you watching? I know, it's, I guess it's kind of generic really, but like, I feel like the way that I tell stories is so heavily influenced by the kind of things that I enjoy. You know, you take little bits of things that you enjoy from different aspects of stuff and you'll realize that you start piecing them together in your own way. And then you kind of make your own narrative voice. And uh-huh. it, you know, and it becomes so much more enriched by the things you take in around you. And I found it so helpful, especially obviously having done the master's course, comments from your peers, just like being able to discuss and articulate stories with people actually makes you realize the parts that you know really well or feel really strongly about. And then the things that you start to try talk about, and you feel like yourself, almost like catching yourself on. You're like, oh, actually, maybe that's a bit I need to talk about more, or kind of refine a little bit more. You know, and I think that's, I think it's always helpful to be able to try tell someone it before you've got the idea fully formed in your head.
1: Totally agree with that. For my final master's project, it was based on an essay that I wrote in the first semester, and it's the first time I've ever written an essay about the comic I was about to do, and the. The huge benefit to that was that I had all my themes in mind. Every single design aspect was thought out to the end. I could describe the story well to people. I knew what I was getting at. So I think if people can do what you said, relate the story to somebody else, write a little bit about it, I think it's uh, exponentially uh, better to the story in the long run.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this story started out with me sat in the library in freshers week going, I've got a bit of time. And just brainstorming themes, ideas, like it just it was again one of those things that I just started writing loads and then something clicked and I was like, yes, yes. And then everything kind of it spiraled outwards a bit like a huge mind map just going crazy. And I was like, there's something I really want to talk about here. And then being able to kind of be like, Hey, do you think I should talk about this thing? And people were like, Hell yeah, I'd like to hear you talk about that thing. And then you just think, and even if it's just something that you yourself find interesting, mm-hmm. it has worth to then pursue.
1: So let's talk a bit about Thought Bubble. So we've known for a while that it wasn't going to be a a live convention, that it was going to be digital. I was wondering if you had any specific strategies as the con was approaching. Um, I was wondering what you had planned and what you had for sale.
0: It's going to be a strange one this year. Quite sad to not be in the bustling kind of convention halls, but it seems like they're doing a lot to promote it and to get people kind of interested in it again. And I think having the panels all online will really get people Invested as well in kind of uh, coming into these digital halls. For me, it's very much been about making sure that I've got this comic ready for print. I'd like to debut it. Obviously, the digital and physical kind of purchase and show it off. Um, the preparations I've mainly been doing is kind of um, I have been setting up my own website to be able to kind of direct people to looking at more illustrations and stuff that I'm doing, and obviously the comics work that I'm doing. I think in general as well, obviously in lieu of having that kind of physical table set up with all the exciting sparkly lights and drawing people into your comics and things, uh, mm-hmm. I've kind of been using Etsy as a base for like a store. Oh, yeah. I think it's one of those things that's very accessible to people. Feel, people feel safe being able to use it. It's kind of a trusted online web host for small businesses and things. So I think it just makes it that one step easier for people to kind of have a look around and go, oh, okay. I see what you've got there and feel safe in being able to purchase it and have the rights protected and all that. So more than anything, I've been kind of polishing up my little Etsy shop and my website, trying to make sure that I've got my comics printed already for that, make sure they're set up properly on there and on Gumroad as well for digital purchase, which I feel like is a good platform for creators for digital comics releases and things. Um, yeah, and putting up some prints and things that I've got. I have been, obviously, I've got a lot of the lino prints that I've done as well. I'm kind of doing a limited run of those. So, there's, I mean, having the physical media of the comics pages as well is quite a nice thing, especially when you've got these big mm. A3 lino prints and stuff. So, Oh, yeah. I don't know, being able to take a little bit else from that comic home seems like a nice thing to have as well. But that's it, really. Other than kind of promoting it, getting some banner work done, kind of trying to get involved and seeing what some sort of the panels are doing, what some sort of the other artists are doing. It seems like it'd be really a fun show.
1: Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it myself. Um, I just had to share a quick little story about um, last year. So last year you had a table at Thought Bubble. Was that your first time at Thought Bubble?
0: Uh, it was my first time exhibiting, yes.
1: Exhibiting in total or exhibiting at Thought Bubble?
0: Oh no, exhibiting at total. Oh, party. okay. I don't know. I... <laughs> cut my teeth on some smaller little exi- exhibitions and convention halls as well.
1: Right. Um, yes, and then when you were talking to the students about, hey, I have this whole table and I, you offered somebody to share it with you. I remember at the time I was like, should I take her up on this offer? Do I have anything to show? And I was like, you know what? It's, it's a hassle to do the show, I'm not gonna do it. And then I had a dream that I, I flew <laughs> back home to Calgary Uh, Alberta. And the dream was just this desaturated, heavy, cold, sad dream where I was back already from Scotland. And the feeling I had was one of hopelessness because I had gone and I had was already home and I didn't use my time wisely and I felt like I wasted my time. So when I woke up, I was like, oh my God, this dream, I'm trying to pay attention to my dreams more now. So I was like, holy shit, I have to go to take this opportunity that Rebecca offered or else I'm wasting my time here in Scotland. So you were good enough to allow me to share this table with you. And I got to go to Thought Bubble uh, and if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been able to do it this year either. And I would have been like, oh, I missed my chance. So
0: I, I love that the fates and your dreams were like, nah, got to go to Thought Bubble. Don't gotta miss out. to go <laughs> this hellscape back home.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love home, but the feeling <laughs> that was left with me of like using my time here wisely and pushing myself out of my comfort zone I read the message loud and clear. So yeah, thank you so much for offering me. Cause we had, I, I had a really good time at Thought Up with you last year.
0: It was such a fun experience. And I think it was nice not being on my own at the table as well. Like mm. actually being able to share it with someone. We had some really good discussions. We did some cool little doodles. I remember you working on some of your character designs for the Remedy actually at the table. And mm-hmm. we were just reading through each other's comics met some really cool other artists and people. It was it's one of those things where even if particularly you don't like sell a lot of things, I feel like you just have such a good experience and so enriched by the people around you that it's worth doing every time. It's definitely my favorite convention of the year, every year.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I find the less I worry about my sales and the more I effort I put into just talking to people and enjoying their company, the better cons get for me in both departments, which is pretty awesome. Um, So the Thought Bubble Digital Con is taking place this year from November 9th to November 15th. As we said, there's tons of events and programming which you can tune into. Rebecca, where can we find you online?
0: Most of my handles are all Rebecca Elysium, which is E-L-Y-S-I-U-M. I I was worried I was going to forget how to spell that. But yeah, so Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And obviously I've got my own website now as well, which is RebeccaElysium.com. Find me fairly easily just by kind of using that and plugging that in. Uh, I tend to update social media pretty regularly, but just with little sketches and things. And obviously Mm -hmm. I've got my Etsy up online again, now with my
1: comics and stuff on. Excellent. And that's where people can pick up the Gorgon on November 9th?
0: Yep. It should be available. I'm hoping it's supposed to have arrived already, but um, (laughs) in the next couple of days it should be coming in. So yes, from the 9th will be available in both my Etsy shop Physically, and obviously digitally on Gumroad as well.
1: Very cool. While, while we're talking about Gumroad, I'll also be having a release on Gumroad. I'll be making the digital debut of my comic, The Remedy, which is a surrealist cyberpunk comic. Um, you can head over to my blog, nicksoup.com, or my website, nickj.ca. Just click on shop and it'll take you to my Gumroad location. I've got a couple different versions of the book available. So there's like a standard comic layout. And then there's a digital version, which is formatted to fit beautifully onto a computer screen. And it it turned out pretty good. Oh, (laughs) Thanks so much, Rebecca. Um, And then you can catch me on Twitter and Instagram at Illustrated Nick. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to speak with us today. I wish you the best of luck with the digital convention. And I literally cannot wait to see what you work on next.
0: Thank you so much. It's been really fun chatting to you. Thank you for inviting me on. And I can't wait well, for more people to read The Remedy and to kind of experience Thought Bubble digitally and see where we go from that in the future.
1: Awesome. And and I really hope that uh, the convention for Thought Bubble works out next year because it'd be awesome to see in person there again. That'd be really oh great. God, yes, yes. That'd <laughs> be amazing. So if you have any questions or feedback on today's episode, you can reach us on Twitter at PenciltownPod or via email, thepenciltownpodcast at gmail.com. So that's a wrap for today, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to our special Thought Bubble 2020 episode. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Penciltown Podcast. Take care. Ba-ba-do, ba-ba-do, do-do,
0: do-do,
1: does this audio sound good